Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us a very special guest. We have the Honorable Lawrence Van Dyke of the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit. That's a federal appellate court here in California. And the Honorable Judge Van Dyke joins us through his judicial writing in the matter of McDougal versus Ventura County. I will do my best to link it in the description below. Here is Judge Van Dyke. The right of the people to keep and bear arms, U.S. Constitutional Amendment 2, means nothing if the government can prohibit all persons from acquiring any firearm or ammunition. But that's what's happened in this case. Under California's highly regulated framework for firearms, law-abiding citizens can only obtain firearms and ammunition by arriving in person to government-approved gun and ammunition shops. And after purchasing a firearm, they must wait a minimum of 10 days to obtain it, and sometimes much longer. By the way, this was filed January 20th, 2022. The three-judge panel included Andrew J. Kleinfeld, Ryan D. Nelson, and Lawrence Van Dyke. There is a concurrence. There's two concurrences <laughs> in a three-judge panel. Kind of weird. But Van Dyke writes the concurrent. one of the concurrences as well. We're going to go ahead and get into that after we get through his opinion. This is the opinion of the court. All right. We continue. I'm on page five of the Google Scholar edition. Uh, so I'm on page five, and it's the Firearms Policy Coalition copy, as well as Michelle and Associates copy. Uh, I think I'm going to, I think I might've gotten it originally from Either one of them, I can't remember, uh, but um, I will link those in the description below. Okay, here we go. Judge Van Dyke, page five at the bottom. After purchasing a firearm, they must wait a minimum of 10 days to obtain it and sometimes much longer. When COVID hit, Ventura County, California, issued a series of public health orders, collectively orders, that mandated a 48-day closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges. They did this while allowing other businesses, like bike shops, to remain open. The orders also prohibited everyone from leaving their homes, other than for pre-approved reasons which did not include traveling to gun or ammunition shops or firing ranges outside the county. The orders therefore wholly prevented law-abiding citizens in the county from realizing their right to keep and bear arms, both by prohibiting access to acquiring any firearm and ammunition and barring practice at firing ranges with any firearms already owned. These blanket prohibitions on access and practice clearly burden conduct protected by the Second Amendment and fail under both strict and intermediate scrutiny. We therefore reverse and remand to the district court. Let me say something uh, briefly. This was this opinion was published before. New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which came about six months later or so. And uh, the issue of intermediate and strict scrutiny no longer applies to Second Amendment cases. So um, 
it actually probably shouldn't have applied even before Bruin. I mean, that's that was kind of the point of Bruin was uh, clarifying what they meant to say in Heller and McDonald, and some would say what they actually did say. And I know that um, um, I've seen other judges uh, make that point. So I'm I'm going to continue. Here we are on page, we just finished page six. We're on page seven, background. Appellants Kellyanne Chakoff McDougal and Firearms Policy, uh, so Second Amendment Foundation, uh, California Gun Rights uh, Firearms Policy Coalition, appeal the district court's dismissal of their complaint. <laughs> so they complained that their rights were being violated. This is me. And uh, the district court just said, and eh, dismiss. They claim that the district court erred in concluding that they failed to sufficiently state a plausible claim and that the orders violated their Second Amendment rights. To fully understand the order's impact on appellate Second Amendment rights, some background on California's regulatory framework is necessary. A, California's extensive regulatory framework for firearms. As we have previously acknowledged, California has extensive laws regulating the sale and purchase of firearms. Wow. Page eight, Sylvester versus Harris, which is uh, Ninth Circuit, 2016. Well, that was a quote from that. Under California law, Individuals could only complete the sale, loan, or transfer of a firearm through a licensed firearm dealer, gun shops. And he quotes the California Penal Code there. After purchasing, individuals must wait 10 days before the receipt of the, Calif uh, of the firearm, then California Penal Code. With limited exceptions, individuals must also acquire or otherwise transfer and take possession of ammunition from a duly licensed firearm and or ammunition retailer, ammunition shops. Eligible persons must obtain a valid firearm safety certificate to acquire firearms, which involves taking a written test uh, generally at participating firearms dealerships and private firearms training facilities. In addition to taking a written test, Eligible persons must also perform a safe handling demonstration in the presence of a DOJ certified instructor, which are generally performed at the firearms dealership. Once someone lawfully acquired, acquires a firearm, California law generally prohibits them from openly carrying a handgun in public places. And those lawfully in possession of a handgun can only carry it while concealed with a license, which can only be obtained, if at all, see Peruta versus County of San Diego. That was 2016 on Bonk, although Bruin changed that. Yeah. By completing an in-person firearms training class that involves live fire shooting exercises on a firing range. The closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges therefore eliminates the only lawful means to acquire firearms and ammunition within the county, as well as a law-abiding county resident's ability to carry handguns in public. As appellants alleged in their operative complaint, quote, if firearms and ammunition could be purchased online like other constitutionally protected artifacts such as paper, pens, ink, and technology products that facilitate speech, then individuals could simply purchase what they need and have the items delivered to their doorsteps. But because of an onerous and complicated federal, state, and local regulatory scheme, people in California cannot exercise 
their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms without going in person to such businesses, at least once for firearm ammunition and at least twice for firearms. The footnotes, this is me, the footnotes are excellent. I'm not going to quote many of them, but I will just say the footnotes are worth the price of admission. B, county orders. I'm on page 10. It was against this extensive regulatory backdrop that the county began issuing public health orders in March of 2020 in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. On March 17, 2020, the county ordered, among other things, that all county residents ages 75 and older shelter in their place of residence until April 1. These senior citizens, and that's a direct quote, by the way, from the order, these senior citizens could not leave their residences to seek medical care, nutrition, or perform essential work in health care or government. <laughs> These narrow exceptions, oh, sorry, these, these senior citizens could only leave their residences to seek medical care, nutrition, or perform essential work in healthcare or government. These narrow exceptions did not include the acquisition of firearms and ammunition or practice therewith. Violation of or failure to comply with the order constituted a misdemeanor punishable by fine, imprisonment, or both. Three days later, this is me. What Larry is pointing out here is that California made you a criminal for exercising your Second Amendment rights. I mean, even your right to association to to move to travel it's amazing three days later on march 20th this is judge van dyke again the county supplemented its march 17 order by mandating that quote all persons living within the county stay at their places of residence as required by the governor's executive order subject to the exceptions set forth in this order. Emphasis added, unquote. People of all ages could leave their residences only to exercise or work around their residence like gardening. And people not subject to the stay-at-home mandate from this March 17th order could only leave their residence solely to engage in, quote, essential activities and essential government functions or services or to operate or work at essential businesses, unquote. Here's me. Essential for what? Essential for what? That's a question that was never posed and never answered. Judge Van Dyke again, page 11. The March 20 order limited the permitted essential activities to only five categories, which the parties agree did not include the purchase of firearms and ammunition or practice therewith. I mean, some of these, I, I'm getting a headache just like listening. This, this hits somewhat close to home, but you know, it, it's not that it hits, it actually is not that it hits close to home, folks, for, for me on this. I'd get a headache even if it was talking about a different state, a different county. Uh, it's not that it's personal to me. It's that this is the United States of America. That That's what it is to me. That's what makes it personal. But yes, my grandfather would, would fit in this category. He lived in Ventura. I was a, I was a, um, I was an employee of Ventura County for a long time. I, I might even still be. I, I don't really know. <laughs> I taught at Moorpark College for at least 15 years uh, part-time. So 
Um, and my grandpa lives in Ventura County, uh, which is also, well, with, in Camarillo. He goes to God speak, you know, Rob McCoy's church. They open back up that one. That That's how my grandpa thinks. And I, in fact, on May, March, 5th, March, um, the Friday before, I think it was March 13th. Uh, I think it was a Friday. I was speaking to the uh, Ventura County, uh, the, uh, sorry, the Caneo County Women's uh, Republican Federation there at the um, Thousand Oaks uh, I think it was Thousand Oaks. It was, it, it it was some kind of club there, right off the 101. And I forget what what the name of the club was, but um, my grandpa was there, and uh, it was filled with wonderful women. And we had a nice lunch, and I gave a talk on the Second Amendment. <laughs> Can't make this up. Okay, back to Judge Van Dyke. the The March twenty order. The March 20 order limited the permitted essential activities to only five categories, which the parties agreed did not include the purchase of firearms and ammunition or practice therewith. To emphasize the strict nature of the stay-at-home mandate, the March 20 order continued, quote, all travel except for essential travel and essential activities is prohibited. Unquote. It further reiterated that only travel into or out of the county to perform essential activities, operate essential businesses, or <laughs> to maintain or provide essential governmental functions or services was allowed. Unquote. Wow. I'm not sure if I want to, you know, read footnote 11. I, I'll just mention this in footnote 11. One of the five was caring for a family member or a pet in another household. You couldn't buy a gun or ammunition or practice with it, but you could uh, take care of your um, somebody else's goldfish. Can't make this up. The March 20 order also mandated that all businesses with a facility in the county except essential businesses are required to cease all activities at the facilities located within the county except minimum basic operations. But it strongly encouraged all essential businesses to remain open. Essential businesses included businesses like hardware stores and laundromats but not gun shops, ammunition shops, or firing ranges. Notably, the March 20 order did not provide any explanation for its designation of essential businesses. The March 20 order concluded that it would remain in effect until April 19th or until it is extended, rescinded, superseded, or amended in writing by the health officer and violation or failure to comply with the order was a misdemeanor punishable by fine, imprisonment, or both. 11 days later, on March 31st, the county supplemented and extended the March 20 order by, among other things, limiting the activities of essential businesses to the provision of those goods and services essential to the overall intent of the orders. For example, farmers markets could sell food and beverages but not clothing or jewelry. It also added that a violation of the orders by a business may subject the business to liability under the state's unfair competition law, as well as other civil and criminal penalties. The March 31st order did not reference gun shops, ammunition shops, or firing ranges, despite an advisory memorandum that had been recently issued by the United States Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency, listing all those who work in supporting the operation of firearm and ammunition product manufacturers, retailers, importers, distributors, and shooting ranges as, quote, essential critical infrastructure workers, page 13 at the top. Nine days 
After the March 31st order on April 9th, the county supplemented previous orders by prohibiting gathering of two or more people outside a single household or living unit. It also added three new businesses to the essential businesses list, bicycle repair and supply shops for online sales only, residential real estate services, and auto dealerships, also online sales. Like the March 20 order, the April 9 order omitted any rationale as to its designation of these three, but only these three, as newly added essential businesses. No rationale. We don't need to tell you why. That was me. Judge Van Dyke. On April 20, a new order, the county reaffirmed many of its previous prohibitions but added new provisions. For example, the April 20th order loosened the requirements for previously designated essential businesses by allowing in-store bicycle sales. How exciting. And it uh, expanded the list of essential businesses by adding boatyards and other businesses that provide for safety, security, and sanitation of boats stored at docks and marinas, gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges remained off the essential businesses list, and the county still omitted any explanation as to its selection of essential businesses. It also expanded the list of essential activities to include, among other things, golfing, while not requiring golfing groups to be from the same household. The April 20 order did, however, accommodate people who initiated the purchase of a firearm at a store located within the county before March 20th, 2020, the day the firearms stores were ordered to be closed. For those purchasers only, it allowed for limited actions necessary to complete the firearm purchase. These actions must occur by appointment only, and only the purchaser and one person on behalf of the store shall be present. But for the rest of the general public who hadn't published purchased a firearm before March 20, the firearm store shall remain closed. It provided no explanation as to why the general public could not purchase firearms or ammunition by appointment as well. Almost three weeks later, on May 7th, the county indicated in a new order that various businesses could reopen. Although the May 7th order did not explicitly refer to gun shops, ammunition shops, or firing ranges, the counties frequently asked questions indicated that, uh, quote, with the elimination of the essential business model in the local health order and reliance on state health order model for critical infrastructure, the sheriff and local health officer have determined that gun stores may fully open to the public provide, provided they implement and register site-specific specific, uh, prevention plans. The May 7th order further defined essential activities in part as activities necessary to otherwise carry out activities specifically permitted in this order. Thus, from March 20 to May 7th, a total of 48 days, the orders mandated the closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges throughout the county to the general public, including the appellants. The closure prohibited county residents from leaving their homes to acquire any firearms or ammunition and maintain proficiency in the use of firearms at firing ranges. Um, (laughs) 
violations of these orders could subject a person to criminal sanctions and civil liability. The county repeatedly reaffirmed these prohibitions while simultaneously allowing businesses like hardware stores, laundromats, bicycle shops, and even boat yards to, re to open and allow people to leave their homes for activities like golfing. The county never explained its rationale behind these designations of businesses and activities deemed essential. The orders therefore denied anyone who did not possess both a firearm and ammunition on March 19th, 2020 from exercising their fundamental rights protected by the Second Amendment until at least May 7th. Um, and I'm going to add here that uh, it's actually May 17th, not May 7th, because here's what happens in in a state like i grew up in in colorado um you know you could look in the back of the paper the rocky mountain news and and find ads for uh the sale of any number of items including firearms and this was not that long ago <laughs> i'm not sure i haven't looked recently in a newspaper i'm not sure uh what what the procedure is now but basically you could just phone the person up and and if you had the cash go over and pick up the gun um in california that's not how it works there are no ads whatsoever in the newspaper for used firearms or anything like that you can't lawfully transfer a firearm that way you have to go through a gun shop even if it's used so in other words, there's firearm, uh, there's, there's used forums that you can join where people post what they have in a private setting. There's auctions and stuff like that. But I mean, I'm talking about for transferring privately sales, not a brand new item, but something that's been around um, and, and uh, something you could pick up used. You still have to go to a gun shop and, and um, that, that means the gun shop has to be open and you still have to wait 10 days, even if you have other guns, even if you have a concealed carry permit, you have to wait 10 days for each purchase, each gun that you, that you transfer or into your own possession. So that means that if the gun shops open on May 7th and you're right there, you won't be able to pick up that gun until May 17th. So actually it's not May 7th, it's May 17th. And that's the soonest you can pick it up because it's down to the minute and second when you, when they put your record in to the department of justice, it gives you a date timestamp down to the second that you can pick that gun up and it's 10 days, 10 calendar days, 24 hour periods. So, okay. So, so for example, let's say realistically you get to the gun shop after work and it's just about to close. Okay. So you, you get the sale in before closing. Well, guess what? Your 10 days is going to come up during business hours, but right before closing, because it's exactly down to the minute and second. Let's say your transfer occurred at um, five, let's say they close at six and it's 5.55, 5.56 and 36 seconds. Well, you have to wait till 5.56 and 36 seconds to get your, pick up your gun. <laughs> and that means it has to be open and there can't be anybody in front of you. And, you know, by the way, how are these people supposed to make money? I mean, they, they're running businesses. You, you, there's not a lot of um, margin on these sales. These, these guys are not getting rich here. There's a lot of uh, competition. There's competition with the used market. There's competition with the new market. You know, th there's not a lot of money in this. Um, 
there's tons of overhead and and you're basically just telling them they can't run their business anyway okay judge van dyke procedural history page 15 appellants filed a lawsuit on march 28th in the midst of the issuance of the first few orders alleging claims under 42 U.S. Code Section 1983 and naming the county as a defendant. Yeah. Got a Section 1983, 1983 claim. In the operative complaint, that's that's the uh, 42 U.S. Code Section 1983 allows an avenue for federal lawsuits against local and state officials who, under color of law, violate clearly established rights that you have. In other words, they don't have qual. You could claim they don't have qualified immunity. They're not just doing it as part of their job. Here we go back here. In the operative complaint, appellants alleged that appellees orders, directives, policies, practices, customs, enforcement actions violated their rights under the second amendment. After the district court denied two temporary restraining orders, appellees filed a motion to dismiss. In evaluating the motion, the, the motion, <laughs> oh, you know what? I'll, I'll mention this. Actually, he does mention May 17th and footnote 14. Okay, good for him. <laughs> I want to give uh, Van Dyke all his all the credit due here. Oh. This is very good. This is very good. All the stuff he's going through. Okay, Van Dyke, in evaluating the motion uh, for motion to dismiss, district court concluded that I'm done with this section already. Appellants failed to state a claim under both uh, both Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And our circuit's traditional Second Amendment analysis. This is me. Jacobs versus, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, 1905, was a Supreme Court decision involving a, max, a vaccine. And it um, in that case, in that 1905 case, uh, the guy didn't want to take the vaccine, and he was fined for it. I think he was fined $5. He was allowed not to take it, and he was fined $5, I believe. So that's Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Okay. When evaluating appellants' claims under the traditional tiered scrutiny analysis, the district court must assume, uh, first assumed that the orders burdened Second Amendment conduct and then determined that the orders do not substantially burden the core right of the Second Amendment. So intermediate scrutiny is appropriate. Applying intermediate scrutiny, the district court ultimately concluded that the orders constituted a reasonable fit between the county's objective of slowing the spread of COVID-19 and the temporary closure of essential non-essential businesses including uh, firearm real uh, retailers. The district court therefore granted the motion to dismiss appellants appeal that order and judgment. Standard of review. We review de novo an order granting a motion to dismiss under federal rule of civil procedure 12B6 for failure to state a claim, accepting as true all well-pleaded allegations of material fact and construing those facts in light most favorable to the non-moving party. De novo means that they just, the, the appeals court, the three-judge panel, this is me, they take a fresh look at it. Okay. All right. Judge Van Dyke. 
Dismissal is affirmed only if it appears beyond doubt that the plaintiff can prove no set of facts in support of its claim, which would entitle it to relief. It's axiomatic that the motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim is viewed with disfavor and rarely granted. Hmm. All right. Page 17. I skipped some citations there. I'm skipping some citations just for flow. Discussion. As noted above, this case asks us to decide whether the uh, order's closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges, which effectively prohibited any lawful acquisition of firearms and ammunition within the county for at least 48 days, violates the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment provides, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, U.S. Constitution Amendment 2. Like most circuits, we have adopted a two-step inquiry for assessing whether a law violates the Second Amendment. That was struck down in Bruin, FYI. That was me. Judge Van Dyke. This test asks whether the challenged law burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment, and if so, directs courts to apply appropriate level of scrutiny. This inquiry bears strong analogies to the Supreme Court's free speech case law. As discussed below, the order's effective prohibition on all access to and practice of firearms at firing ranges throughout the county clearly burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment. And because Jacobson, that 1905 vaccine case, does not concern the specific constitutionally enumerated right at issue here and essentially applied rational basis review, it does not apply. Instead, the severity of the order's burden warrants strict scrutiny, which the orders fail to satisfy because they are not the least restrictive means to further appellee's interest, especially when compared to businesses that have no bearing on fundamental rights. Yet, nevertheless, we're allowed to remain open. And if intermediate scrutiny was the appropriate standard of review, appellees failed to show how the orders satisfied it given their complete omission of any explanation as to why gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges posed any more of a risk than other non-constitutionally protected activities that were deemed essential and allowed to remain open. Number one, the orders burden conduct protected by the Second Amendment. Page 18, we must first decide whether the order's 48-day closure of gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges burdens conduct protected by the Second Amendment based on a historical understanding of the scope of the Second Amendment right. To determine whether a challenged law falls outside the historical scope of the Second Amendment, we must ask whether the regulation is one of the presumptively lawful regulatory measures identified in Heller, or two, whether the record includes persuasive historical evidence establishing that the regulation at issue imposes prohibitions that fall outside the historical scope of the Second Amendment. The presumptively lawful regulatory measures identified in Heller are well-defined and narrowly limited. Neither of these two threshold inquiries are met here. First, no party argues that a 48-day closure of all gun shops, ammunition shops, and firing ranges in the county is of Heller's presumptively lawful regulatory measures. Nor could they say as nothing in Heller suggests that a complete and total ban on the commercial sale of all arms and ammunition implicates the well-defined and narrowly limited, presumptively lawful categories. 
Second, the record does not include persuasive historical evidence establishing that the orders impose prohibitions that fall outside the Second Amendment's historical scope. Determining the scope of the Second Amendment's protections requires a textual and historical analysis of the amendment. Instead, Heller's exhaustive textual and historical Second Amendment analysis, as well as our own courts, uh, our court's own case law, reveal that the ability to acquire firearms and ammunition and maintain proficiency at their use in firing ranges follows well within the Second Amendment's historical scope. I can't believe he has to say this. Uh, let's see here. Um, you know, buying a gun, is that protected by the Second Amendment? Uh, let's just, let's think about this. Uh. That was me. Judge Van Dyke. The most natural reading of keep arms in the Second Amendment is to have weapons. I have a little uh, comment on the side. It says deep. This This is deep. Deep point. The most natural reading of keep arms in the Second Amendment is to have weapons. While colonists understood the right to enable individuals to defend themselves, you know, to bear arms implies something more than mere keeping. It, it implies the learning how to handle and use them. It implies the right to meet for voluntary discipline in arms, observing in doing so the laws of public order. Quoting from Judge and Professor Thomas Cooley's 1880 work, um, mm, sorry, that was a quote. There was some quoting there. There's some good sources here. Quote, some general knowledge of firearms is important to the public welfare because it would be impossible in case of war to organize promptly an efficient force of volunteers unless the people had some familiarity with weapons of war. Okay. Some good quotations there. The British embargo and the colonists' reaction to it suggest the founders were aware of the need to preserve citizens' access to firearms in light of the risk that a strong government would use its power to disarm the people. Indeed, a complete ban on the ability to acquire arms and ammunition and the closure of all firing ranges renders the right to keep and bear arms hardly worth the paper it consumed. A quote from Heller at 609. While appellees cite Sylvester, in arguing that California has a long history of delaying possession of firearms without impinging on the Second Amendment, California's historical delays were far shorter than the 48-day uh, mandated closure at issue here, which actually amounts to a 58-day delay for the possession of firearms when California's mandatory 10-day waiting period between purchase and possession is added to the county's 48-day ban. Also important is the fact that unlike Sylvester, which had clearly established timelines for the delays, the delays were indefinite and fluid. And even in Sylvester, we assumed, without deciding that the challenged 10-day waiting period as applied to appellants in that case fell within the Second Amendment's uh, historical scope, Appellee's lack of burden argument fails because the orders are not part of a long historical tradition of proscription. We conclude that the orders burden rights protected by the Second Amendment. That Sylvester case he's talking about was that I think I'm going to do an episode on that. That's a fantastic district court ruling in there. And I believe it was a Democrat judge, actually. Uh, I think he was appointed by Clinton that uh, struck down the 10-day waiting period as applied to those people that sued. 
Um, and uh, I, I really liked his, his argument. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do an episode on that one. I mean, he was overturned in the ninth circuit, big surprise also by Democrats, but you have to give credit where credit is due. I do believe he was, I think he was Japanese heritage Democrat judge from like central California. He got it right for some reason. Great. Hey, welcome on the Republican professor. We're going to have him as a guest through his judicial writing. <laughs> Two, the orders fail under any level of heightened scrutiny. Page 20, because we determine that the orders burden conduct protected by the Second Amendment, we proceed to the second step of the Second Amendment inquiry to determine the appropriate level of scrutiny. When ascertaining the appropriate level of scrutiny, just as the, in the First Amendment context, and remember, this is this is me, remember these levels of scrutiny, that's done away with now with Bruin. Yeah, but it's really important to understand for history's sake what what the arguments were like i mean first of all the the county of ventura they're like we're not burdening any uh second amendment right you know just we you know we can delay and delay see we delay and that's fine and um that's their argument and they're serious about it they're not they're not uh there's no indication that that um, anybody would think that that's ridiculous. They, I mean, that that's how out of it these people are. Okay. When ascertaining, so when ascertaining the appropriate level of scrutiny, just as in the First Amendment context, we consider, one, how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right, and two, the severity of the law's burden on the right. Thank God we don't have to do this anymore. Scrutiny land, as uh, Randy Barnett put in one of his law review articles by that same title. Page 21, quote, in weighing the severity of the burden, we are guided by a longstanding distinction between laws that regulate the manner in which individuals may exercise their Second Amendment right and the laws that amount to a total prohibition of the right. The, res uh, unquote. the result is a sliding scale. A law that imposes such a severe restriction on a fundamental right of self-defense in the home that it mounts to destruction of Second Amendment right is unconstitutional under any level of scrutiny. A law that implicates the core of the Second Amendment right and severely burdens that right warrants strict scrutiny. And again, these levels of scrutiny are gone. Scrutiny land is not in the Second Amendment anymore, or I should say the Second Amendment is not in scrutiny land. It never was, never should have been. They just made this stuff up and applied it after um, Heller. When I say they, I mean these uh, Democrats on the Ninth Circuit. Just made it up. If a, if a challenge law does not implicate a, the core Second Amendment right or does not place a substantial burden on the Second Amendment right, the court may apply intermediate scrutiny. But rational basis, rational basis review is not appropriate. In determining the appropriate level of heightened scrutiny, we are guided by First Amendment principles. You know, it's, it, it's interesting that they say First Amendment principles here. I'm, I know he's, at this point, Van Dyke is applying the levels of scrutiny because that's what's in this. It, this is pre-Bruin and he's in the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit says that's what you got to do. And he's, you can feel him, you know, like a horse, you know, you know, chomping at the bit here. He's like, this, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, because if you look at the dissent in Heller, there was a Turner Broadcasting argument, which is a First Amendment uh, argument that Breyer makes, I think it was. And that was explicitly rejected as, as a way of handling the Second Amendment claims, the, the analogy with the First Amendment. If I'm wrong about that, tell me in the comments or send me an email at the Republican Professor at Substack.com.
Here's Lawrence Van Dyke. Given that Jacobson does not concern a specific constitutionally enumerated right and essentially applied rational basis review, Jacobson does not apply here. Instead, the order's severe burden on the core of the Second Amendment right warrants strict scrutiny. And because the orders are not the least restrictive means available, they fail to satisfy strict scrutiny's high standard. But even if intermediate scrutiny applies, appellees have failed to satisfy their burden of showing a reasonable fit. A, Jacobson does not apply, page 22. Over 115 years ago, the Supreme Court in Jacobson addressed whether a state statute requiring smallpox vaccinations violated the inherent right of every free man to carry to care for his own body and health in such a way as to, to him seems the best. The defendant in Jacobson structured his claim as a substantive due process challenge emanating from the 14th Amendment. No specific enumerated right was at issue. The court began by address, uh, discussing the government's general police power, noting that the mode or manner in which local administrations choose to safeguard public health and safety is within the discretion of the state, subject, of course, only to the condition that no rule prescribed by the state shall contravene the Constitution of the United States or infringe any right granted or secured by that instrument. A local enactment or regulation, the court continued, even if based on the acknowledged police powers of a state, must always yield in case of conflict with the exercise by the general government of any power it possesses under the Constitution or with any right which that instrument gives or secures. After discussing well-established principles of police power, and folks, this is me, you got to get a handle on police power. You have to come up with a theory of the police power. You have to have that nailed down. Um, there was a, I mean, I'm not sure if I really agree totally with Randy Barnett on all this stuff, but all his stuff, but I'm still thinking about things there. But, you know, he does bracingly like to say, you need a theory of the police power. And I, I like that. And we'll maybe I'll have him on the podcast at some point. Um, okay. Page 22. After discussing well-established principles of police power, the court um, reasoned that the state legislature required the inhabitants of a city or town to be vaccinated only when, in the opinion of the Board of Health, that it was necessary for public health or public safety. And on in, in footnote 16, um, yes, he was fined $5, which is about $140 for not getting the vaccine. Page 23, given the general deference afforded to the legislature, the legislature, the court determined that legislative action is only unconstitutional if a statute purporting to have been enacted to protect the public health, the public morals, or the public safety has no real or substantial relation to those objects or is, beyond all question, a plain and palpable invasion of rights secured by the fundamental law. Because the state statute at issue satisfied neither of these two prongs, the court concluded that the statute did not invade any right secured by the federal constitution. Multiple jurists and legal commentators have likened this analysis by the Jacobson court to what we now call rational basis review. In the intervening century since Jacobson, the Supreme Court has repeatedly determined 
that some level of heightened scrutiny applies when evaluating laws implicating specific enumerated constitutional rights. The rational basis test could not be used to evaluate the extent to which a legislature may regulate a specific enumerated right, be it the freedom of speech, the guarantee against double jeopardy, the right of counsel, or the right to keep and bear arms. <laughs> Incidentally, I'll say this right here. Every once in a while, you'll hear people say, you know, the right is not unlimited. And, and they lead with that, you know, like, um, or they'll lead with something like um, a nod to the Second Amendment, like, hey, what's up? And then they'll say right after that, I mean, like 2.5 nanoseconds after that, they'll say, well, I believe in segment, but the right is not unlimited. Is the right against double jeopardy unlimited? Is the right to counsel not unlimited? Uh, you know, take the right not to be raped. I mean, it would just be really weird if if you said, um, yeah, I believe in the right not to be raped, but it's not unlimited. I mean, if you say it would be just odd to say that uh, in that in that hypothetical scenario of saying that. Um, I, I don't understand, you know, you can always see where people are coming from when they they give a nod to the Second Amendment, like, yeah, what's up? And then they say that right after that. It's it's like they don't really understand it. They don't even understand what they're saying. The right to self-defense is not unlimited. What are you talking about? The right not to be murdered is not unlimited? Um, is, do you, tell me what cabins that right, you know, what... T tell me uh, what the exceptions are, you know, um, ordinarily, you know, you, you have a right to against double jeopardy, but, um, so anyway, okay. Regarding the second amendment, the Supreme court has explicitly determined that rational basis review does not apply. By the way, it was all Republicans that said that FYI, FYI by a razor thin majority and those judges those justices got pointed and they were voted on by the senate and it was republicans in the senate that put them on the court f y i judge van dyke here was appointed by judge by president trump and he was put on the court by a republican senate look it up Look it up. I don't like Mitch McConnell. I'm going to make fun of Mitch McConnell. Yeah, well, we would not have this guy saying this stuff in the Ninth Circuit. Merry Christmas. So rational basis does not apply, reasoning that if it was required to overcome the right to keep and bear arms, all was required was rational basis. The second amendment would be redundant with the separate constitutional provisions, uh, prohibitions on irrational laws and would have no effect. Our court has reiterated that laws burdening second amendment rights must withstand more searching scrutiny than rational basis review. The Supreme court has also repeatedly affirmed that heightened scrutiny requirements still apply during times of crises. In several recent cases evaluating public health orders issued in response to the COVID pandemic, the Supreme Court applied strict scrutiny and ignored Jacobson entirely. These are the church cases. Okay. The only... Uh, writing from the court pertaining to COVID-related government orders that relied on Jacobson with Chief Justice's, Justice Roberts' lone concurrence in South Bay United Pentecostal Church versus Newsom, and that was in 2020. Um, even if he has distanced himself from Jacobson in more recent writings, 
When evaluating other public health orders issued in response to COVID-19, this court has similarly ignored Jacobson and applied the tiered scrutiny analysis. Um, let me just mention here something here. When he says this court, he's talking about the Ninth Circuit, which includes something like it's it's like at least a dozen judges, and some of them are retired or retiring and senior, take senior status, and uh, they're randomly drawn at three for the initial appeal. Each panel has three on it, and this is this is a three judge panel, McDougal versus uh, County of Ventura, and um, so. Just keep that in mind. It sounds kind of odd to say this court. The Supreme Court says that too sometimes, and sometimes it's people that ex that existed decades ago, and that they're not not even alive anymore. So FYI, that's just how they talk. Okay, page twenty four at the bottom. We're almost done. This makes sense as the Supreme Court has re repeatedly indicated: national crises do not water down the application of constitutional rights. Page 25 at the top, that goes on a Christmas card, that goes on a coffee mug, that goes on a calendar. Okay. We need like calendars of constitutional rights, you know, centerfolds of constitutional rights. Dang, look at that. Yeah. The crises do not water down the application of constitutional rights. Instead, they need to protect those rights. It's is especially acute during those times. <sighs> Jacobson's rational basis review of a substantive due process claim therefore renders it inapplicable here. Jacobson involved an entirely different mode of analysis, an entirely different right, an entirely different kind of restriction. That's Gorsuch. Where Jacobson concerned a substantive due process right that traditionally warrants rational basis review absent suspect classifications, appellants bring a Second Amendment claim that traditionally warrants heightened scrutiny. Even Jacobson himself correctly recognized that police powers must yield in case of conflict with any right which the Constitution gives or secures. And where the challenge restriction at issue in Jacobson allowed for viable alternatives to avoid the alleged harm, the orders at issue here effectively imposed a 48-day complete ban on acquiring firearms and ammunition and practicing with firearms at firing ranges. Nothing in Jacobson purported to address, let alone approve, such serious and long-lasting intrusions into settled constitutional rights. Jacobson is in inapplicable both on the facts and the law. Page 26, we do not decide that the orders are categorically unconstitutional. How much more do we have of this? How much more, buddy? Um, hmm. Okay, we're going to break this up into two parts. This, this has been the first part. I wanted to uh, give you um, the lay of the land here. Yes, you did hear all of that correctly. And it's a Republican judge that's pointing it out in a Democrat state, and they don't like it. And I just want you to see just how radically they don't believe the Constitution. I mean, they just, there's no constitutional right in their mind that, that even applies. Okay? And um, you need to be aware of this stuff. This is basic history. Thank you. Judge Lawrence Van Dyke, appointed by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate for all the time that you spent on this. And we will continue next time on page 26.
Thanks for joining me to uh, um, on the Republican Professor podcast here in uh, California, December 2023. We're coming up on Christmas. So when I talk at you again, I'll be flying into Nashville tomorrow. I'll, I'll be in Tennessee. And uh, our friends in Tennessee, they have a different issue. They don't understand what's at stake. I don't think they really do like people in California do.